Hello and welcome to Thrive Differently. I am so excited for my podcast guest today. I have the beautiful, amazing, inspiring Helen Newman, a multi-award-winning Australian filmmaker and video artist. She draws from an eclectic background of classical piano, crisis counseling, and community development. And she has established a reputation for delivering a wide variety of powerful stories told in unique and engaging ways through documentary and video art. Helen's work has taken her around the globe and into a broad range of situations, from war zones to refugee camps, ancient cities, and urban and remote communities. Her collaboration with a variety of performance, visual, and sound artists have resulted in collections of multiple platforms and performance-based works. Helen's documentaries have been screened on ABC TV and a range of national and international film festivals. Her most recent documentary, Solstice, has won her multiple awards talking about the impact of suicide. Helen, I am so, so excited to have you on today. Welcome to the podcast. I would love to know your story. Who are your people? Where are you from? Just tell me anything. Right. Thank you. And firstly, thank you, Nicole, so much for having me. I'm loving the enthusiasm and energy, and I feel so welcome here, which is great. Thank you. So my name's Helen Newman. I come from a town called Aubrey, which is in regional Australia. It's about halfway between Melbourne and Sydney. And I grew up there and I am here now. So short stints away during my life. It's a town of about, I think about 70 or 80,000 people. Very conservative town, love sport. As a child, I think my greatest passions were reading and playing the piano. So not quite the mold of most kids in this town. I grew up one of five kids in a pretty small house. But, you know, it worked out pretty well and I'm still really close to all my siblings, which I feel really blessed about that I've got that beautiful connection still with them. And then I got married quite young. I was 20 when I got married to another musician and that was fabulous. And then unfortunately, when I was pregnant with our child, he was killed in a car accident. And that really shifted my world a lot. You know, I had a, had a little bubble. I thought I knew where I was going. I thought I understood how it was to be a person, a wife, just getting ready to be a mum. And then it's like everything kind of got knocked sideways and I rethought the world. I really hate what happened, but I really liked that I changed and expanded my view of seeing the world through that. So I then I remarried and that marriage, I had two more kids, which are, all my kids are awesome. I'm just so lucky. I've got a great relationship with them. They're beautiful kids. So I feel really blessed again about that marriage lasted for about eight years. And then we separated and again, you know, kind of just get knocked sideways. But I think that really ultimately, when I look back now, decades later at the work that I do, I think really all the time I had some world consciousness, some interest and connection in how the pieces fit together and how they can fit together better. It underpins everything I do, you know, whether it's in my family or in my work, even the way I travel with my now partner, the places we go and how we engage with communities when we go there. It's all about feeling more connected and exploring more of what is possible. 
So that's kind of me in a nutshell. And I still live in Albury. It's an awesome town. It's kind of growing up. I mean, wow. What a story. Honestly, there's hope. There's devastation. There's so many emotions that could come with it. And here you are as an award-winning filmmaker, truly making a difference and an impact in the lives of so many people. It's incredible how you were able to turn all these different situations that you've had in your life into such a positive message. How did you connect the dots from being a pianist and a musician to getting into the filmography and the videography that you're doing? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So there were quite a few dots in between, I'm sure you can imagine. I was teaching piano and then I decided stupidly that I thought I wanted more of a challenge in the work that I do. So I went and studied social welfare and became a social worker. I was still teaching piano on the side, which was actually paid way better than social work was paid. I started working with women who are escaping domestic violence. I started working in poor communities. And I really loved the challenge, but it was so isolating and crushing in a lot of ways. There wasn't support there. It was really poorly paid. And so it became this grind. I wanted to create change. I wanted to see the difference and see what was possible, but it was slowly crushing me. So those two worlds were kind of existing together. And about that time, my marriage started to break apart as well. And then on top of that, it's like all the stars aligned or something. I met a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, who was filming a story in Albury where I was protesting the removal of some refugees along with my best friend. He was an Emmy award-winning documentary maker. He'd come up to Albury to film about these regional Australians who were out there with their placards, and I was one of them. My son was really young. I was still breastfeeding him. So I'd be out there waving the placard and doing media interviews and then sitting in the gutter breastfeeding my baby and then up again. It's just this crazy time. And it was like, I think probably my world was spinning a little bit. (laughs) But anyway, at some point I picked up the camera and, and I realized I had in my hands the most incredible tool to give voice to other people. And so everything kind of flowed from there, really. We followed the story of those refugees, some who were put into Australia's detention centres, which are horrific camps for refugees, some who escaped and ran into hiding, and some who were sent back to Kosovo, which at the time was where they come from. And I followed that story with no money. We had a camera. Sometimes we were borrowing a camera. In the background, my marriage is falling apart and I'm juggling my three children but somehow driven to follow this story of these people whose lives were in such a mess. All I saw were families, just like my family, that just wanted to be together and wanted to be safe. That was the commonality I saw, and I think that was what drove me. So we feel on that story, and it kept expanding as we discovered more about Australia's policy around detaining people who seek asylum here, detaining them indefinitely. A convergence of things happened. We've been filming the story for nearly two years. We applied for funding to complete the documentary. There was a one-off funding that would come out that would provide you with a quarter of a million dollars. We got the funding, and I think that was partly because at the time we were sitting in the high court watching a case happen here in Australia about refugees who had been blocked from coming to Australia, and the Twin Towers were hit. 
And the language in that room overnight turned around. They weren't refugees anymore. They were potential terrorists. And the whole world shifted for us. I remember waking up that morning and knowing that never again the world would be the same, that something had fundamentally shifted. So the repercussions of the Twin Towers being hit was literally global. What it did mean was we got the funding because we had so much research and background in terms of that particular topic. We went on to make a feature length doco. We won a few awards with it. And by then I was completely hooked in this mode of telling stories. And so I scratched out an existence for the years following. I've been so honoured along the way. People have been so generous with their stories. In some ways, almost a sacred space that you walk into when you're working with someone, asking them to share things that, you know, are scary or awkward or confronting. So, yeah, I absolutely love that component of my work. I'm very blessed to have what I have. Thank you for sharing. There's so much that we can unpack there. While you're protesting, going up to a filmmaker and saying, hey, I am so interested in this. That's brave. The fact that you have a child who's breastfeeding and you're sitting there while also protesting on behalf of the refugees, that's brave. And then hearing you say that you're sitting there with these amazing humans who just want to be with their families and are now could be considered terrorists and the discriminatory behavior that happened after that. I think that's just wild. There's so much bravery. There's also an incredible amount of support. You had said that your passion in telling stories is to help imagine a kinder, more creative, and brave world. That's a huge statement. How did you find the courage to live like that? I actually don't know. I really don't know. I think when I look back now, my family were a solid unit. You know, it wasn't perfect, but I always knew I was loved. I always had a solid base to come back to. I think that helps you as a person. If you have a solid base in your life, then I think that means that you can step out into the unknowing, knowing that you can come back to that solid base. I didn't always have that. I don't know what I reached down into when my first husband died. I do remember feeling like even the dream that I had that night was that I was eternally falling. And so I know that I had no sense of being grounded at that point. And after my marriage fell apart again, I would look at other families around me. No family's perfect, I know, but from the outside looking in, when you're losing yours, you mourn that. Even if you don't still want to be there, you mourn the family and the unit. But I guess experiencing that, knowing that you can pick yourself up, gives you another bravery too. And, you know, both times, I didn't know how I was going to keep going after losing my husband, I was 21 when he died. It really took a lot to, to sort of pick myself up. Once I did that, I knew I could do it. And I knew I could do it probably in a lot of other situations. So maybe that was a fundamental young life learning that has given me the bravery. I'm not really sure. And, you know, like I used to perform piano and it would scare the bejesus out of me. I was not a performer. I hated it. And I always get nervous performing and public speaking. And so maybe just like these little like stepping out and being braves regularly keep me brave. You know what I mean? Like you test it and you don't die. So you can keep doing it. 
Totally. When you have a message to share, hiding is playing small, right? You can't help someone if your voice and you are hidden. And I think that's the brilliant thing. Overcoming loss is just absolutely devastating. But do you find that your loss has also helped you to shine? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Not to diminish grief and loss because it lives with me every day. But yes, it shows you a different part of yourself. You have to reach into different parts of yourselves and know they're there. I might not have discovered these parts of myself if I hadn't been stretched in that way. And so taking loss even another step further is the film that you are showcasing right now, which is absolutely incredible. I had the honor of watching it. It's called Solstice. You follow the life of people who have been affected by suicide. And so I would love to transition a little bit there and talk about how you're mobilizing support in both a regional level in Australia, because it does take place very close to where you are, but how that could also impact the global community about suicide awareness. Yeah. Well, when I started Solstice, which was back in 2018, so definitely a different world pre-COVID, I really didn't know exactly what the film was. I was trying to work it out as I worked through it. I worked out I had three aims. One, I wanted to give voice to people who had lost someone to suicide or were struggling with mental health. I saw that there was a huge need for that, for voice to be given to those people. Because of the fear and the stigma around it, they were often isolated from communities. Two, I wanted to unite communities more so they could more effectively wrap around people who need support around suicide and mental ill health. And then the third thing that I really wanted to do was to bring it to a study to add the film's voice to the other voices that are trying to create change both in the service provision for people, but also at a policy level so that we recognize mental ill health in the same way that we recognize physical ill health and that we fund it and support it with the same understanding of the importance of it. So I guess they were my three aims that underpinned the work the whole time when, you know, it got very messy and I was challenged by what I was doing. I'd keep coming back to why am I doing this? I mean, those are huge. We chatted a little bit before we jumped on the call and my business is all about helping the individual the community and the business, right? And so yeah. you even just going through this, give voice to people around mental health, individualism, 100%, making sure people feel seen as they are and the things that they're going through and having support. And then going on to the community, uniting them because no one wants to be alone. You know, yeah. the loneliness yeah. is a disease in and of itself and it plays right into mental health. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and then being able to take the different vessels that actually can make impact, which is policymakers, corporations, businesses, donations. I take notes as I interview and I'm like, you know, this is just a gift because as humans, we want to have connection with people who align with the things that we care passionately about. And we each do it in different ways. When you were recording Solstice, what did those three pillars look like for you? So giving voice as an individual, the communities, and at the policy level, what impact has happened since this film? What impact has happened since the film? The film screened in quite a few places, and sometimes I've been there and sometimes I haven't. Sometimes I'm in the cinema audience. 
feeling like I want to vomit because it's so scary for me to see it. And sometimes screenings happen without me, but to look at it at an individual level, overwhelmingly what people say to me is, oh my God, the film was so hopeful. I didn't expect it to be so hopeful. Often, you know, if you're going to choose to go to see a film about mental ill health and suicide, you've possibly got some connection to that experience yourself. So a lot of people in those audience have lived experience. And I also hear that they say it resonates for them. It represents their voice. So at that individual level, I go, tick, it's doing what I really hoped it would do. It's validating people's stories. It's giving them the space to then feel braver about sharing their story or not feeling the shame around their story and their experience. So that's fantastic. At a second level, it's that collective viewing of this very brave document, which is brave by the people who are in it, sitting together in a dark cinema with a hundred other people watching it creates its own community. And when you walk out of there, I see people in groups talking and sharing. There's crying and there's laughing and there's hugs and there's this community. And there's a space where it's accepted to talk about suicide and mental health. There's no shame there. You know, it's like the nuts being cracked open a little bit just for a little while. And so that's really precious. And then at a policy level and at a service level, that's the tough nut to crack, actually. We did screen the film at our New South Wales Parliament House to MPs up there, so members of Parliament. And I continue to do that and I continue to put it in front of policymakers. It's not the only voice. There are so many people working in this space, working to create change and who know a whole lot more about mental ill health and about suicide than I do. They are the experts in their field. And there's all the lived experience people wanting to be heard as well. This film is this one tiny little piece in that puzzle that I guess the collective voice that needs to be heard by policymakers. And so, yeah, it's being part of that as well. You know, and even if audiences watch it and go, okay, I need to be more proactive in terms of how I speak to my MP or I can write a letter or whatever else, if it becomes a tool for activism in that way as well, then great. That's what it's there for. It creates the story, right? It's bringing light and giving power to story around suicide awareness, but also mental health. There's also the story of loss. So when you're thinking about that feeling of loss and grief and suffering and hopelessness, people can relate to that. And I think it's really incredible the way that you talked about being in a dark room. I had interviewed Jerry McHugh from Global Health Films and she also talks about the power of being in a cinema with people, building community, sitting in silence with your own thoughts, but then having the ability when the lights come back on to know that you're surrounded by people who have just watched and shared and feel emotions may not be the same ones, but at least you're starting to have the conversation because now you're having those feelings and those feelings evoke the emotion that leads to conversation. I think that is the beauty of film, but that's also the beauty of someone like you. It started at a regional level, but now it's going global. It's impacting beyond you. In the film, you talk about the Winter Solstice Foundation. First, I would love for you to talk more about the Winter Solstice Foundation. And then I would love to also have an understanding of how did you capture their stories? Yeah. Okay. First question. So the winter solstice is 
an event that we have here in our town square, in the main street of our town. So it's, you know, from where I'm sitting now, it's four blocks up the road. And on the longest night of the year, we set up this space and it's a unique space that probably about 2,000 people from here and surrounding smaller villages and towns, they come there and it's freezing. It's so freaking cold. It's horrible and bitter. There's about six fire pits. So, you know, people are really smart. They've been there for a few years. They come early so they can get close to the fire pit. <laughs> and then, and then um, Annette and Stuart, who um, feature in the documentary Solstice, this is their child. They created this after losing their daughter to suicide. And Annette spends all year chasing speakers that she can get who she thinks will be amazing, perfect speakers for that community to listen to. And they're always different. There's no formula around who she chooses, even though there's sort of like a running order that the, the event follows each year. Last year, she had Zach Williams. So she had Robin Williams' son come over and speak at the event. We've had incredible leaders from our Indigenous communities, our LGBTQI plus communities. She is determined, absolutely determined to create, as she says, something that would have helped her and she would have loved to have when she lost Mary. And she gives that to the community, to our community every year, her and a committee that work all year round creating this magical event. And it's pretty special, you know, I talk about sacred places and it is one. It's a place where people are safe to grieve openly. There's a big bowl that's there and it's the candle bowl and you can go and light a candle in memory just quietly on the side while everything else is happening. There's a big tree, a red tree, which is relevant to the story of the winter solstice and Annette and Stuart. And it represents, I guess, the hope. And people write little tags and hang them on the tree in memory of their loved one. And it's a place where you can honour that person. You know, there's so much shame wrapped around a person taking their life that it can be hard as the person left behind finding a safe space to honour them without all that stigma and judgement that goes with someone who's taken their life. So this is a place without that. It's pretty special. And that's what the Winter Solstice is. So once a year we do that. Since the film came out, there's been a couple of other communities that have gone, oh, we want to try this too. I know Canberra, our capital, they did one out there this year as well. And there's been other small communities that have tried it on. Oh, and there's one that I will be filming. They don't have it on a winter solstice, but it's in a tiny little community, nearly two hours from here. It's a place called Coriol. That community, sadly, is in the documentary because they've lost a few young men to suicide. But after I connected with them, they connected with the winter solstice. All the threads joined. <laughs> now they're having their second winter solstice. It's not actually winter solstice. They've called it something different and they've taken it and their community now owns their own version of it. But the concept is the same. You know, they gather in their park. They celebrate and honour and remember the people they've lost and they support those who are left behind. And so it's like these little sparks of hope are spreading out now to other towns which is beautiful and it's just yeah that's it's pretty incredible that's amazing it's a snowball effect right that one has momentum someone hears about it and they're like oh i can do more and then comes these other groups and now yeah. you start to snowball it and that's amazing you know you're not only an artist bringing light to suicide awareness and mental health but you're also empowering the stories of these 
beautiful foundations who are supporting it as well. And you're creating this multi-tiered legacy of paying it forward, which is incredible. So honorable. I think in terms of like with the solstice sort of sparking out into other communities, maybe what the film has done is given them permission to do something they would have liked to have had the bravery to do. Maybe that's what the film does. It shows them there's this option. Hey, this idea already exists and it's possible. So maybe that's what the film does in terms of sparking it. It's been pretty amazing to see it. Yeah. I always like to think about how in these stories and interviewing such amazing people like yourself, when I go back to what I do on a regular basis, which is helping businesses build their teams and thrive and creating impact in a way that's not traditional, I think about what you just said and experience is part of diversity. When you start to talk about experience, diversity is thought, right? Things that have happened to you. It's also your color. It's also your socioeconomic background. There's so many different things. How can we help create a safe space in corporations and businesses? Because there's someone who's suffering and by not talking about these things, you stay suffering and you go home and you deal with it on your own versus having a community of support. What if businesses or organizations could approach the conversation around mental health? There was a part in your film, one of the men was having difficulty getting a job because of mental health. Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the story behind that was, it's such a sad story. The beautiful woman that I interviewed in the film, Connie, she lost her partner to suicide. He'd been an army vet, an Australian army veteran. He'd done, I think, four tours of Afghanistan. He'd been physically injured, and as you can imagine, it was a war zone. He'd seen a lot, a lot more than any person should ever see in terms of suffering and hurt and hurt people hurting other people. And so he came back broken and damaged, physically broken and mentally broken too. I don't think this is unique to Australia. Our defence forces are really not good at supporting people who are mentally unwell. They don't know how to deal with returned servicemen who are broken. You know, you teach someone to go and kill other people and then you bring them back and ask them to just swap back into some sort of normal domestic situation. To me, all of it makes no sense anyway, but that's an impossible thing to ask our brains to do, to just stop and forget what happened and what we've been through. And so Jesse, her partner, struggled for years. He tried to get support getting a job. He tried to get support for his mental health. It's a massive beast, the army, trying to work through that to get the support he needed. It just kept failing at every level. And there's a lot of just blame the individual, blame the individual. But as Connie says, you know, if you've got on your resume that you're suffering from PTSD, that you're broken, that you need medication, nobody's going to want to touch you. We're too afraid of that. We don't know what we're getting. As an employer, it was a really tough journey and he didn't get the support that he deserved and he should have got from the army and actually his story became quite well known in Australia and there was a royal commission into veteran suicide there's been recommendations made and some of those will slowly be enacted around veteran mental health they've got a long way to go there's some of the most damaged people in our communities are in our veteran communities so um that stigma lives with you if you've got, if you've traveled that journey and you've got mental ill health, 
it's really hard to then be accepted back into the mainstream. I think that's a global epidemic. Those who have served coming back, PTSD, there's tons of different things that I am not knowledgeable enough to speak truly to. But when you talk about having conversations about mental health and suicide, how are those conversations similar or different? Yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And what kind of mental health too? So it's very interesting. At the moment, there's a lot of talk, but especially post-pandemic, and rightly so, there's a lot of talk about anxiety and depression, and they are very debilitating mental illnesses. We talk about them a lot. I don't know if you have similar there, but over here we have Are You Okay Day, where it's the day where you remember to ask someone, Are You Okay? We have all these things that we're starting to accept at a community level, even at an individual level, and even at a corporate level as being strategies for looking after your mental health at that sort of like easy to access level. If you start to talk about bipolar disorder, eating disorder, schizophrenia, that's a tougher nut. You know, people still struggle and it's much more difficult to talk about those very serious illnesses where suicide rates are very high if you're struggling with those illnesses, they're very hard to treat, you know. Anorexia is one of the most serious illnesses you can have and the suicide rate from suffering from an eating disorder is really high. So I think on the one hand, we're getting better at talking about struggling with our mental health. On the other hand, when you go to those very difficult to treat, very misunderstood still illnesses, we've got a really, really long way to go. And I think that's where that sits closer to the way we talk about suicide, which is you don't want to upset someone when they've lost someone to suicide. So you don't want to talk about it. It's hard to know how to talk about the grief. We shit at talking about grief anyway. We're just not good at doing that. It scares us. I learned that when my husband died, people would sort of shuffle their feet a little and they didn't want to talk to me in case they made me cry. Man, all I wanted to do was talk about him. I missed him. When you get to talk about that person you've lost, you're with them for a little bit longer. You have a little bit more time with them. And that's what I found, particularly with Annette and Stuart, who feature in the doco. Stuart said to me, because I asked him, he's watched this documentary many times. He's sat in audiences and watched it, him and Annette. And I said, how is it for you seeing Mary, the small video footage of Mary? And I said, how is it for you seeing Mary on the screen? And he said, you know, I feel honored that I get the chance to see her again. He talks about her. And I understand that to some extent. That when you've lost someone that you love, you want to be able to see them again and talk to them and celebrate them. I guess what I'm going to is that awkwardness that we have talking to other people, whether it's a very serious mental illness or suicide, there's still a big awkwardness around talking to people and an avoidance of it. Yeah. And I think if you peel back, there's loss. And the further you go into now naming certain types of loss or how loss happened or the beginning stages of formation of loss, people get more and more uncomfortable. So do you think the first conversation could be having a conversation around loss? And what would that look like? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to turn it around. We all know loss. We've all lost something. Yeah, I think that could be a good conversation to have. I was very drawn to the film for many, many reasons. It's a beautiful story and it's actually an uplifting story. I resonated with the sense of loss. I haven't lost someone to suicide. I had lost a friend, a dear friend of mine, 
who was 21, her name was Mary. I don't get to talk about her a lot. The fact that I was able to sit there and feel lost with Stuart and also have empathy with Stuart and compassion for Stuart because I don't know exactly how he's feeling, but I know the feeling of loss. It allowed me to sit with my partner while we were watching the film and we both got to share stories about the loss that we experienced and it brought us closer together. I think that is the power of what this film has done is because loss, even if you aren't directly impacted by suicide at the moment, someone you know is. You can yes. still relate to them if we can start having conversations around loss. Another thing that came to mind, recently in Nashville, there was a mass shooting where someone had come into the schools and killed multiple teachers and students, which was absolutely devastating. I have two children and I sat them down and I had this conversation around all things that happened, all things that went wrong. My youngest son said, we have to have these hard conversations to remember everybody who was lost because people were yeah. lost for different reasons. And I'm like, as a seven-year-old, that's amazing that you can think of it in that way. And I think there's something that went wrong in so many different ways. And what can we do at an individual level? When do you start to have these conversations? Because as a mom, sometimes I don't know. I don't know how to have these yeah. conversations. So when do we start? Yeah. Really young. We start really young with small concepts around loss and also what matters in terms of our connection to people. We can have those, those conversations really young because it's, hey, there's never going to be a good time to tell someone that someone died and there's never going to be a good time to tell someone that someone died by suicide or that someone has a very debilitating mental illness. There's never a good time. But when children are young, you can't keep secrets. Being truthful is really the only way, you know. It's not exactly the same, but when my husband died and then my daughter was born, she always grew up knowing that her dad had died. So there was never sort of some hidden secret about his death. And it's so not the same. But I am grateful. The lesson I take from it is that we never kept a secret. We were always truthful about his death and how he died. I was just talking to someone the other day who she lost her brother to suicide and her niece and nephew have not been told. It's not her place to tell them. She can't tell them. So her brother's partner has decided not to tell his children because they're so young, but it's becoming this growing thing that sits in the room that nobody talks about and they will find out one day. And then the question will be, why didn't you tell me sooner? So I think having those tough conversations, but having them in a way that's suitable for whatever age that child is, is so important and it's so important for your ongoing relationship with that child, a trust you will build with them later on. It's not an easy answer, but it's important. I think it's fundamentally important. How do we normalize the conversation around loss, mental health and suicide? Yeah, well, I mean, loss is part of every day or the way the brain works and, you know, the good days and the bad days, they're part of life. They're part of everyday life. We have good days, we have bad days. And you can talk about those with a young child and they understand it. They'll understand feeling happy today. I'm feeling sad because this thing happened. I'm sad because my friend has moved away. Let's talk about that. So you can have those conversations really early on, I think. And it just starts a normalcy around this is what we do. 
And then, you know, if there comes a time where they do have to struggle with a big loss, you've already set up a foundation for that conversation to happen. So you're a safe place to go back to. I love that. It actually reminds me, there's this wonderful book. Have you ever read any books by Susan Cain? No. Her first book was called Quiet, which is basically the beauty of introversion. She has a second book and it's called Bittersweet. And it talks about that emotion of things that are bittersweet and loss. She has a quote that says, it's not that pain equals art. It's that creativity has the power to look pain in the eye and decide to turn it into something better. It made me think of you, especially because there's such a positive message with your film. How do you approach your subjects and capture their stories? in a way that truly reflects your own artistry? Well, one, I love that quote. That resonates so strongly with how I do try to do my work. When I think back through Solstice and the people that I sat with, it's always an honour to be trusted into that space. And so from there, I want to represent the whole person. And the whole person is not someone who's broken and crying in a corner and has a sad story, it's so many other dimensions. That person is also, they're brave, they're strong, they're funny, they're irreverent, they're clever, they're talented. Like there's so many other things that comes with them. I want to represent the whole person, not just this one dimensional part of a story that I'm telling. I also find that, you know, because I do most of the bulk editing myself here before it got fine-tuned by people who are more skilled at fine-tuning than me. And so I've spent many hours after the interviews falling in love with each person, going back through the footage, writing the transcripts, breaking it down. And I do, I do. I fall in love with each person. So I want to honor them. I want to make their voice come forward strongly, coherently, and keep their humanness as well as part of that story. So yeah, what you said, that Susan Cain quote is exactly what I want to do with it. And I think too, in terms of salsas, it was so important with that. And even with my previous work, to not leave an audience disempowered, that would be a, a huge disservice to bring people in and disempower them around the topic of suicide. I mean, the whole point of this film is to empower people. So I had to find that hope in the darkness. And it's that dichotomy. I really like how that works with audiences. You resonate, as you say, with the you also are surprised by the hope that's found in the darkness. And I like that. And the strength that's found in the brokenness. I really like that that exists in those people that I interviewed. Yeah. It just reminds me of legacy. I mean, legacy is a story. Mm -hmm. Legacy is the way that your story is left on this world. And it lives through all those people you touch. Yes. You know that you're doing that. Yeah, I do. And there's a weight in that. Yes. Yes. I feel the weight of that. that no one else yeah. to say. It's an honor. And I love that I'm allowed to do that. Yeah. I really do love that. I've found the tools and I'm at a point in history where the tools are accessible for me to be able to do that as well. You know, filmmaking is still quite expensive, but it was unattainable for a lot of people. So being able to tell stories in this way on such a broad range of stories by so many people is a new thing and it's part of our digital age. So I love that I live in this age and can do this because of that technology as well. I feel really 
really lucky and scared, often scared. I'm often scared before I go into an interview with someone because I also don't want to stuff it up and say the wrong thing. I really want to journey with them and get it right and allow them to be heard. I think you have to also give that to yourself, right? I mean, if someone's going to judge you by your words and not take the chance to get to know you and just have a conversation, they're not seeing you and the goodness in your heart. Mm -hmm. You shine. It's coming out of you sideways. Your goodness. <laughs> your goodness. I feel it all the way here from Australia. You may not always have the words, but being able to sit there in discomfort. Often I hear, you know, oh, I don't know what to say. That's okay. Of course you don't. I don't know what to say. Allow people the space to talk. That's what they want, a safe place to talk in. So you don't have to have answers. You don't have to fix it. It can't, often can't be fixed. Can't make it any better. You know, it's, um, Annette's had people say to her, well, you know, I didn't call you because I didn't know what to say, or I didn't call you because I didn't want to talk about Mary. And she's like, I think about Mary every day. You're not going to make me think more about her. You're not going to make me cry any more than I already do. Honor the person and love the person that you've got by giving them the space. Yeah. And that creates a safety, right? Safety and space sometimes is silence yet presence. Yeah. And that's also when you're watching a film, you're in silence. But like you said, you're cultivating these very safe space at winter solstice and the beautiful foundation. It's being with people and also not just having to talk, but knowing that you can if you want to. But if you don't, there's still yes. someone there physically supporting you and showing up. Yeah. Yes, you can spend those two hours on your own or you can get a hug from a random stranger or you can bring your family. There's lots of children running around in the dark. You can come however you are. And that's quite a special thing to be able to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. You talked about in your journey, your editing, all the different things that you do, the funding, that film is expensive, but it is more approachable now with the digital age. What advice would you give to people who are looking to create magical films and share stories? What advice would you give them that you didn't have that could really help them? I think I would say do it. And I know that's actually a big phrase because there are a lot of real reasons why you can't do it, but do it. If you want to tell that story, tell it. It needs to be told. There's this beautiful concept, and I cannot even remember where I read it, that a piece of art or a creation comes to you for a time and it waits to be born and you're the one that can birth it. And if you don't do that, it'll go somewhere else and find someone else to give it life. And so if you've got this story and you need to tell it, tell it. It'll sit with you for a while and it'll wait to be told. But if you don't tell it, someone else will find it and tell it. I really like the idea of that, that there's these stories, whether it's documentary or it's drama or it's my little projection stories that I do, which are completely opposite to my documentary work. They sit with me and they drag at my brain and they ask me and they're nagging me. And if that's happening... Find a way to do it. Find a way to birth it because it needs to be born. Yeah. Actually, what you just said sounds really familiar. Is it Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic? Yes. Yes. It's oh, my goodness. I was like, hey, hold on. I've heard this before. Yeah. It's Elizabeth Gilbert. Thank you. Yeah. It's so true, though. You know, if you have this thought, the universe is going to send that energy to somebody else and they're going to come up with it. I know. And I know it sounds like magic thing, but it kind of is. 
And my experience is that I believe it. I just believe it now. Yeah. That's amazing. So like, what are the three difficult things to accept when you're starting a documentary as a filmmaker? Um, not having an income. So I know that I will have to work harder elsewhere to have an income. That I will be vulnerable and scared often. And that it's a long road. Yeah, it's a long journey. So they're the things I have to accept. But I know there are other things that come with that. You know, I know that I'll be given special moments. I know that I'll meet people that I'll just love to bits and they will teach me so much. So there's things you have to accept. They're the hard bit of it, but there's things that, they're the payoffs, obviously, because I'm still here. The payoffs, you're worth it. (laughs) So when you envision what that looks like, what is different about Helen Newman in five to 10 years, if you can cultivate it? I think I'm a storyteller. I think that's what I am. I don't know how I will always do that. I just want to get better at telling stories. And I'm interested in tearing down some of the devices and smoke screens and things that I reach for when I make stories, distilling it down more. That's a craft thing that I keep wanting to work on. I, I believe that in five or 10 years, I'll still be telling stories. I don't know how I'll do that. I really don't know. I just know that I will be doing that. Yeah. And so when you think about on a global level, what are you looking for your business to become? Wow. Oh, gosh, that's such a big question. On a global level, what am I looking for my business to become? I don't think of it like a business. Like I know it's a business because I put in a tax return every year. (laughs) (laughs) Better at what it does. I guess, you know, it's mainly me. It's occasionally I'll hire a cinematographer, but mostly it's me shooting and it's me interviewing. It's me setting up the lights and the sound. I'd like to see greater collaboration. Yeah. I'd like for there to be more collaboration with other creative, excited people who will challenge and stretch me. Working with more people, which will mean that I will actually explore storytelling in different ways as I work with different creatives who have different forms of telling stories. That's beautiful. That's the team thing that we talked about earlier. It's about impact of people and community and all those amazing things, one life at a time. And it's the power of synergy when you could bring more amazing people who share the same message together. Now that you have this synergistic movement happening where you can even create a greater impact on a bigger level. Yeah, I think so. It's nice to not be the only one carrying the can as well and have a brain's trust work with you. One of the things I really valued at the final stages of this film was exactly that. I worked in Melbourne for a few weeks with a small team that interrogated my decisions and challenged me and offered different ways of seeing things. And I value that. Yeah, we are teams. Like that's how we work. Yeah, because that's what I was wondering. In the coaching world, like myself, I have a coach. I've had multiple coaches. In the business world, a lot of businesses have coaches or work with HR managers. What does a coach look like in your industry? Who is that person you go to as you're trying to share your message and really hone in on showcasing the people and your craft and the global impact that you're trying to make? I would have different mentors in different places. Really early on when I was first learning to feel like I had some mentors and I think mentors are great. I love the concept of mentoring, not versus, but as well as 
going to a university to learn how to do something. I think there's so much value in what a mentor relationship brings to your learning. In terms of editing, I've had mentors that have taught me different things in terms of how you craft that story, how you don't have to always reach for that little and to join the sentences together. How you don't always have to have music running under. You can let the silence and the ambience work and just these things that I've learned through just working side by side and allowing someone else to shape me. In terms of how the film gets this message out and who mentors me, in some ways, you know, it's Annette and Stuart. They're my mentors. I hadn't thought about it before, but I watch the way they work and their determination and the clear sightedness as they step forward. And that reminds me to do it the same way. That reminds me that's a good way to travel. That's effective. So, yeah, I think I find little wild mentors around me. I mean, and that's amazing. You're showcasing this wonderful, beautiful film that, you know, I'm hoping is going to blow up and get so much love. And in that, you have these two beautiful protagonists in Annette and Stewart. And they're your mentors. When you give, you also receive so abundantly. You're giving by giving them the platform, but they're giving to you. I mean, what a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Annette and I are very good friends now and Stuart. We walk the hills with their dogs. It's gone beyond a filmmaking contract or a documentary contract. It's way more, way more messy than that now. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is wonderful. It's been so amazing to hear your story. I would say this is such a, it's a hope conversation, like hope and joy and positivity is totally my jam. So thank you for sharing. Before we end, I always like to ask the same five questions uh -huh. to my guests. It's called my Thrive in Five. Can I get yeah, at you, Helen? Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I would love to know, how do you bring your quirk into work? Yeah, I think probably it's through the crazy little projection stuff that I do. So yes, I make documentaries and yes, they're about human rights, suicide and loss and grief. And then I take my storytelling and I put it into things that are magical. And it's all about me wanting to reach the dreamer child in each of us. And it's quirky and it's a little bit crazy. Like I made these fine little projections that people had to wander through a forest to find them. And I make these other works that are around Indigenous storytelling, but you walk into a space where it's 360 and you're surrounded by this animation as the narration happens. And these are quirky ways of telling stories, but I love them because they're the light. You know, they're the silly, oh, I get to play with this animation over here. Oh, I get to tell this fun story. Like one of them was, I got this little girl and I green screened her and I put her in this underwater scene and she was like chasing fish in this underwater scene. And that was just silly and fun, but I got to do it. So that's my quirk. It's kind of my projection work. Okay. We didn't even get into all of that. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. That is so yeah, incredible. It's that's my balance. A, it's a balance. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. So cool. And where, where do these works live? I've got one that's an exhibition in our library museum here at the moment. Other ones are often for just events. So they'll only be up for a week or a day or two or three weeks somewhere. The one that was in the forest was for one night. You know, I just madly ran cables from generators to this trail. I had a teacup 
And I projected a fish swimming around in a teacup and sort of hung the projector up in the tree. And so some of them are just like that. They're just one night. And then I pack them away and I reimagine them and they're born somewhere else. And yeah, so they live in various places. Okay. That has to be one of the best quirk into work I have heard. Like, I mean, what an artist. I mean, I think that's what you get with a true, beautiful artist. When you say quirk, it really is different and amazing <laughs> in the beautiful ways. Oh my gosh. Okay. Who is doing something outside of the box that inspires you and why? Yeah. There's a couple of people. We have an artist called Annette Walworth here, and she is amazing. She is such an incredible storyteller. She makes documentaries. She makes animation. She does VR. She creates everything. And every work she has made has inspired me. When I spoke to you about peering it back, the craft of peering storytelling back, she has got that already. Her work inspires me. Um, and another person who inspires me is someone who I made a documentary about, who is an Indian man who works with children who live on the railways in India who have been abandoned. And he provides homes for them and reunites them with their families where he can and provides them with an education and they become employed. And he inspires me because he's so childlike still. You know, he's surrounded by sadness and poverty and loss and grief but he's so childlike and so excited and I remember the last time I interviewed him I've been to India a couple of times and filmed him and he said you know I'm not curious so much about life anymore I'm really curious about what death is and that's kind of how he lives curiously he's just interested and, and curious about everything and yeah he inspires me because of the way he lives Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And what film was this? It's a film called Atnagar. So I made it for him. His organization is called Atnagar, which translates to my home. And he uses that to raise money for his organization. So it's quite different to Solstice. It wasn't made for festivals. It was made for him. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, I'm just embarking on it now and it terrifies me. We are going to have a beehive in our backyard soon. And I am so nervous about being responsible for 10,000 lives that I'm... <laughs> oh my God, really... that is amazing. That's how... Oh my gosh, you are just golden. Keep going. <laughs> so yeah, I'm doing this for the first time. I keep sort of reaching forward into it and going, no, no, I can't do it. But this spring, we will set up the beehive and have bees in our backyard, which will be incredible. Oh my gosh, wow. that's, that is very cool. And you will be responsible for a lot of little lives. lives. I know, I know. I'm yeah. scared. <laughs> it's great. Okay, if you were to write an autobiography right now, what would be the last sentence in your book? Wow. Ah, it's so hard. It's actually someone else's words. It's a quote. It's breathe deeply, stay curious and eat your beets. Keep eating your beets. And it's a Tom Robbins quote. It's like, these are the things that have worked for me is breathing deeply, so being still, taking the time, stay curious. You absolutely have to stay curious. 
And I guess, you know, eat your beans is staying healthy physically. So it's actually not my words, but in some ways that where I'm at in my life now, that encompasses how I'd like to live it, what matters to me in it. Those are your values. Yeah. All right. This is the last one. What does it mean to you to thrive differently? Well, I think it means to look at the world differently and look at your place in it differently, allowing yourself to step outside what we're told are the norms of how you live your four score and 10 years on the service and actively choose the way you want to go forward instead. So that when you are an old person sitting in your rocking chair, if you're blessed enough to get to that point, you can look back and laugh at what you did and be proud of what you did and be excited by what you did. So I think just taking the time to imagine how you want to live and then being brave to step towards that. So thriving differently for me means imagining a different way of living and then doing it, not just imagining it, but then doing it or doing some part of it. It'll happen if you do. You you have me in tears right now. I think that is gorgeous and it hits straight to my heart and is validation of why I've been put on this earth and why you have been put in my world, which I'm so very, very blessed and grateful for. So thank you for that. That was, that was beautiful. So before we wrap up, I would love for you to share where people can find you, your work, watch your films, anyone you want to shout out, please let the audience know because you have a message that I would love to help spread. Oh, wow. Thank you. My business is called Nomad Films. I can be searched under nomadfilms.com.au. Solstice itself, the film has its own website called solsticefilm.org. So that's where people can connect with me and my work. My work is on Facebook, a little bit on Twitter, on my Instagram as well under Nomad Films. And Solstice, the documentary is on Instagram as well. And I post up there. And, you know, I really want to actually shout out to Jerry McHugh that connected us to. She had my film in her beautiful festival, which she creates with so much love and wisdom. And she just kept giving and giving and giving. And that's not normally the experience when a film goes into a festival. It's often like, thanks very much for your film, see you later. But she has just nurtured and loved and cared and, and then brought us together. So, you know, really my shout out is to Jerry to say thank you so much. Uh, I will share that shout out. One day we'll have a big group hug. We're all like hugging. Her work is incredible. She just wants to highlight filmmakers and stories in such a beautiful way, which obviously she adores you. After this conversation, I see why. You're incredible too. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, Helen. And I will make sure to tag all of your resources in the notes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been an absolute pleasure.